Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, and Happy New Year. It's 2018, and I know we ended the year with the CWT Challenge, and I hope all you fine folks out there in the Scaling Up Nation are thinking about how you're going to get your certified water technologist designation if you have not already. If you need more information about that, please go to my show notes page and I've got a bunch of links straight to the AWT site and I've even got some tips for you to help you get on the right path to passing the exam. Well, with the new year, we've got a lot of new things coming up and one of the items, it's one of my favorite things to do twice every year are the Association of Water Technologies Technical Training Seminars. We've got those coming up right around the corner. The first one's going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's February 28th through March 4th. It's going to be at the Green Valley Ranch. And the second opportunity for that is going to be in Cleveland, Ohio. That's going to be March 21st through 25th in the Cleveland downtown Marriott. Folks, if you have not been to one of these training seminars, I cannot think of any other thing that you can do that will boost your education and your information that you have about water treatment. It is truly like drinking from a fire hose. So every time you go, you're going to get a little bit more and a little bit more. So if you've only been once, don't think you've been there, you've done that, you've got the t-shirt, go ahead and come back because I think you would be impressed about how much more information that you are going to get. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the things that go on there. It actually starts on Thursday for the base classes. But on Wednesday, if you come in early, there is a sales training class. And a great friend of mine, Russell Baskin of Tower Water, teaches that. And he's going to talk to you about the basis of sales and talk about what your real role is when you're in sales. He's going to break down sales, take you step by step through the sales process, talk about marketing, building a brand, and all sorts of sales methods and, and different things that he's done along the way that he's going to share with you. It's phenomenal the things that he has in this class. I've been privileged to see some of the things that he's been putting in there as he's been developing it. So I know that you are going to enjoy that. Also concurrent with that class is our friend of the show, Colin Frain, and he is going to be talking about reverse osmosis and ultra filtration. So again, a great class, a lot of technical information about that. He's going to give you a complete overview about membrane and ultra filtration technologies. He's going to talk about all sorts of advanced topics related to that, including design, operation, cleaning, troubleshooting, just a phenomenal amount of information packed in a very small time frame. So uh, if you're interested in that, be sure to sign up for that. The other classes start on Thursday and go through Saturday. And then there's two classes that you get to choose from on that agenda. So there's the technical training side and there's the fundamental and application side. So I want to explain to the audience exactly what the differences are. Because up until recently, they were two very different classes. And, and they still are, but they build on each other. So we start out with fundamentals and applications. We get to a certain point, and then we then move on to technical training. So if you've been to one and not the other, 
Don't think that you don't need to go to the other one. I, I think that you get the full scope of exactly what's going on when you blend the two classes together. So what the heck do we talk about in there? So fundamentals and applications. Uh, I'm one of the instructors in that class, so uh, very proud of that. We talk about the, the basis of what we do as a water treater. So we'll talk about that. And then uh, just the basis of water and all the characteristics of water. We'll get into some safety. We say in the class, if you get hurt, nothing else matters. So we put a lot of emphasis on how you can keep yourself safe out in the field. We look at testing. And one of the great things about this class is we not only talk about things, we get our hands on things. And we're gonna have test kits there. We'll have water samples there, and you will actually be testing the water, and we're going to go through the interpretation of that. So instead of just lecturing about it, you're actually going to get to do it. So a lot of questions get answered during that. We'll go through some time management techniques. We'll talk a lot about boilers, cooling towers, closed loop systems, how to talk to your customers, and how to write a service report. And that's just the surface of what we'll talk about. Moving over to the technical training class, we'll talk about water chemistry. And again, the foundation is set in the first class, and now we're moving a little bit higher. So some water chemistry in that. And where we were talking about safety before, now we're talking more regulatory with health and safety. And then yours truly is going to give you a water treatment math class. And I know most people, they go into that math class thinking, oh my gosh, couple hours of math, how am I going to get through that? But I have painstakingly done everything I can to try to make that as interesting as I can. And my goal is not to get you to do the math, because I know everybody out there can do the math. My goal is to get you to understand the equations. So we're going to talk about what the equations are, how we came up with them. So that way it's not just a number you're getting, it's interpretation of that number when you actually get it. So um, there's more classes. I'm talking all about math. So we'll talk about advances in the feed equipment. Again, higher levels of boilers, cooling towers, closed loops. And Jim Lukanich, friend of the show, he's one of my favorite speakers there. And he is going to go into the biology, excuse me, Jim, the microbiology of cooling systems. And I tell you, when you start to understand that, you really start to be able to control your systems. On Sunday is the Certified Water Technologist exam. So if there are people out there that want to take that exam at a AWT function, this is your time to do so. And Angela will actually be the one that's giving that examination. By the way, I said examination. I hope you guys noticed that. I've heard some listeners have created a drinking game out of how many times I say test instead of examination. So there you go. And then the last thing I want to say about that is I, I do hope that you take some time and you make arrangements to come to this training. I don't think there's anything else out there that compares to it. We're able to bring it as an organization because all the speakers volunteer their time. So it's extremely affordable, especially with all the information that you get. When you're making your reservations, please keep in mind that there are limited spots. So once that class fills up, 
there's no other space in the room. So if you want to go, make sure you make your reservations. And then as you're making your travel reservations, I've seen as an instructor, a lot of people want to leave on Saturday, a couple hour early before we actually dismiss. And I tell you folks, I think that's a mistake. I know people do it because they're trying to make their flights home and they want to save that last night of the hotel. But really, you're thinking you're not going to get this type of training anywhere else. And now you're taking a percentage out of what you've paid for and you're missing it. In the fundamentals class, we do our wrap up at the very end. And we try to lay things out and put them together so things make even more sense the last two hours of that class. And I can't tell you how many people miss that because they were trying to leave early to make those flights. I do think it is worthwhile to stay either to the next day to make a flight on Sunday or to catch a later flight because you don't want to miss that stuff. That being said, I've noticed things that people do that do better in the class, do better on the examination, do better in water treatment from this class when they do certain things. So I'm gonna take a couple moments and explain what some of those items are. Again, there's limited spots. So if you're thinking about going, don't just think about it, put it into action and sign up now. Go ahead and do that. Once you sign up, you're gonna get information from AWT that tells you how to access all the information that us instructors have put online to allow you to either see presentations or have access to handouts or, or items such as that. My advice to you is immediately start to download those items and then start to review them. So before you even sit down in that seminar, you have an idea of what's gonna be talked about and you've already created some questions in your mind. So you're listening for those answers and you're, you're asking yourself, did that answer the question that I had? And if it didn't, now's your opportunity to ask the people that are instructing those classes. So I think you'll get a lot more out of each seminar that you attend. And then you know, making sure that you're taking notes not only during the seminar, but before the seminar. Make some notes of what you want to get out of each and every section, and then make sure when that section's over, you got those items out. When you are done with the seminar, so uh, we, we try to give a lot of breaks during the seminar, but granted, there's so much stuff we try to go over, there's only so much time that we can actually break, so there's probably not as many breaks in there as there should be, but when you get a break, please take care of your bodily functions and all that stuff that you have to do, but it's important that you review all the notes that you took and make sure that you understand them now and make any changes or additions so you can understand them later. I can't tell you how much this is gonna help your comprehension when you go back and try to reread your notes. The last thing I wanna tell you to do is schedule time when you're gonna go back and review your notes and maybe put some of this information into play before you go to these seminars. So for example, we're getting back from Vegas on March 4th, maybe March 5th, I wanna go ahead and slate three hours in my office 
that all I'm doing is going through my notes and I'm coming up with an action strategy on whatever I'm gonna do with that information. If you don't do that and you just have intentions to do that, the day-to-day is gonna happen and we're simply not gonna get to it because something else is gonna cry out louder. So try to schedule that and if you can do that as soon as you get back from these seminars, I think you're gonna get a lot more out of it. In fact, I know you're gonna get a lot more out of it because you're going to remember the context in which you were taking those notes. And then as I said before, Don't just go to one training. There is absolutely no way that you can get all of the information going to one training. When I was preparing to take the role that I did with the education committee, Bruce Ketrick, who leads the education committee, one of the jobs he had for me was to sit into every presentation so I thoroughly understood where the speaker was coming from and every slide that was on the screen there. So by going to multiple classes, you're able to keep increasing the amount of knowledge that you're getting because you've got that baseline knowledge from the previous classes and then you've put that into practice in your regular day-to-day. And now that stuff is, is not new anymore. So since that's not new, you're able to learn stuff on top of that. So I I really think if you follow these tips, you're going to get a tremendous amount out of these technical seminars, no matter which one you go to. And if you're taking the CWT exam, a lot of people will go to these seminars not to prepare to take the CWT exam, but just as a quick review, maybe a confidence builder right before they go in and take the exam. And folks, if you have not gotten the five tips of what you should do before you take the CWT exam, please go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT and go ahead and get that. So I will be there. I hope to see you there. And by all means, please feel free to come up to me. Tell me you like the show. Tell me what you want to hear on the show. If you have some questions, tell me that too. Because as you know from previous shows, one of my fears is I'm always going to run out of questions. So please help me make sure that that does not happen. Keeping on the AWT theme, our guest today is the current president of the Association of Water Technologies, Mark Vermeulen. And Mark's going to join us in a second. He's going to tell us a little bit about himself, how he became the president of the Association of Water Technologies, some things he did leading up to that, and just what to expect from us, the Scaling Up Nation, out of the Association of Water Technologies for 2018. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Vermeulen. My lab partner today is AWT President Mark Vermeulen. How are you, Mark? I am doing fantastic. It's so nice to be uh, talking with you today, Trace. Well, we are very excited to have you here on Scaling Up. And, and Mark, you are from Canada. So what, what, what's it like up in Canada? Well, you know what? At this time of the year, it's usually much colder than it is. Um, in Celsius, it's minus six today. Very little snow. It's a, it's a vastly different winter than uh, than what we've been used to. We had a big dump of snow around uh, Halloween, and then now it's 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 cold. You know, below zero, but it's not uh, it's not freezing cold, and we haven't had to shovel a lot. So it's actually been a a little bit of a welcome respite from what we normally have. And where in Canada are you? 
I live just outside of Edmonton, Alberta, uh, Canada. So it's the uh, would be north of Montana, Calgary, Alberta. People who are familiar with the uh, Winter Olympics. Uh, so I'm just about three hours north of of there, uh, just outside the city of Edmonton. Well, you mentioned the snow word. We get the sh- just the threat of snow here in Atlanta, and the whole city shuts down. So you guys actually know how to deal with it up there, I'm sure. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a lifelong uh, thing that it comes early in life, and you just uh, learn to adapt and, and move forward. Well, Mark, I introduced you as the Association of Water Technologies current president. Do you mind introducing yourself to the audience uh, so they get to know who Mark Vermeulen is? Sure. Uh, I've been uh, I've been married for 27 years. My wife, Stacy, she's a strong supporter of everything that I do. I have three kids, uh, 23-year-old Spencer, 21-year-old James, 19-year-old Kate. All three of them are in university or college, all doing really well. They are going to be home tomorrow. The last one gets home tomorrow for a nice Christmas break. I uh, get a chance for the family to get together. It's uh, fewer and far between when they all get off to school. And uh, I've been in water treatment since I graduated from the University of Alberta with my master's in 93. So it's been, it's been a lot of years. So what got you into the water treatment industry? Yeah, that's a really good question, Trace. What happened is uh, when I was doing my master's, uh, it was time to look for work. And I uh, scoured the one ads and this company came up that was looking for a process development chemist. And it fit right in with my uh, analytical chemistry master's degree. The company turned out to be Nelco. So I uh, joined the company in the lab, scaling up uh, from the PhD development chemist. I would scale it up so that we could manufacture and, and drum it off and tote it off. And then when Nelco started to shut my plant down, they asked if I wanted to go into sales. Having no idea what that was, that was the best decision of my life. And, and that was uh, the uh, start of it all. Sounds interesting. Now, you also have your CWT. How did you come to say, this is something I need to get? Well, you know what? It's, uh, the CWT is, is an, a tremendous differentiator uh, in the water treatment industry. It, it allows you to prove that, just like you have with, a, with an engineering or a chemistry degree or such, that you have the ability to learn, you have the ability to, to uh, be a professional in some area, and this is a third-party accredited. So when I was looking around for how I could differentiate myself and our company, at the time, I uh, said, hey, I think the CWT would be perfect. I uh, studied a little bit for it, went to the three-day training session, rode it on a Sunday, and lo and behold, I, uh, I passed. And I've been a CWT now since 2006. What's your number? Do you know? My number is 323 or 322, I think. I want to say that one of the Andes, Andy Morcom or Andy Williams, that I just interviewed, his number was like 330-something. So we don't have that many CWTs. I was very surprised to hear how few we actually have. I know. It's strange how in the industry, it's either it's that mountaintop that, that's very hard to reach, and, and a lot of people just they can't reach it or they just don't have the wherewithal, or it's something that we as an organization and an association need to get out there and promote them more. And, and that's, uh, we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about our four outcomes that the association is working on. One of them is advocacy, and we've brought on a new person within our management company to be a strong advocate and, and push that. And perhaps one day that, uh, you know, that will show fruit and, and those numbers will, uh, will go up like a rocket ship uh, once we get out there and more and, and it's more known with everybody. 
Yeah, I've put out to the Scaling Up Nation the CWT challenge, urging people that if they're going to be in the best industry in the world, which of course is water treatment, they need to be the best in that industry. So I'm hoping we see some numbers increase on that as well. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's just it's an awareness issue, and then it's it's more trying to differentiate going to the training session and writing the test is not necessarily goes hand in hand. Go to the training session, take advantage of the wonderful knowledge and expertise that is is uh, put out in those training sessions, but then schedule a, an offsite test where you're more uh, conditioned to be successful and get a proctor and write the test on your own time and your own initiative so that it's you have a better chance of passing. That's great advice. Let me ask you, since you are not in the United States, was the test different or difficult in any way because you're, you know, outside of the States? Well, you know what? I wrote it back in 2006 and, I, and it has since changed. But back then, the, the biggest impediment to passing for international people was the health and safety aspect. It was all American codes, American DOT, American regulations. And in Canada, we probably follow the same rules, but our, our uh, regulation numbers are different. Our, our transportation of dangerous goods is rather than DOT. So that was the biggest impediment. That was just a hard memorization during the uh, lead up to the exam was to memorize everything within that uh, section and and do the best. I think that's since been changed and they do have a Canadian uh, version and I'm not sure if they're working I, I believe they're working on a on a, a Latin American more Mexico and South version as well to allow the international writers to do a little bit better in that area. How often do you see CWT in bid specifications? I see it probably once out of every 10. As you know, Canada is a much smaller country. There's only about 35 million people. So the the actual influx of, of bids and the requirement of having a CWT is much smaller here. A lot of our business is not bidded. A lot of it is you go through a traditional sales process. So the government, where we see it, mostly is in government and large institutions. And that would come along probably in my world once every nine or 10 bids that I see. It's always interesting to to talk with somebody outside of the States just to, to see what CWT is like. You also do servicing outside of, of your hometown and you have some overseas business. So I'm, I'm a little curious about that. I'm wondering, how did you get business that was overseas? Well, that, that's an interesting question as well. So what happened is they, um, there was a company out of Calgary, which I'd mentioned earlier is, is kind of the oil capital of our province. And they there was a company there that I had worked with within the province for a number of years. And they had gone overseas to the country of Egypt and partnered with the Egyptian government to form a steam flood. And that's where you inject steam into the ground to loosen the oil up and recover it. So they asked for some chemistry and, and we were shipping chemistry over uh, one sea can a year to satisfy the requirements. And then as they scaled up and went uh, commercial, the, the demand went huge. And so what we did is we set up a, a manufacturing facility in Cairo back in 2008. And then from there, I support uh, and do the service work from here. And I have a, a local company there that does the manufacturing delivery. And they also can do some emergency service work as if it's required. But it's, most of it is done in my three or four visits a year when I head over to the Middle East. What would you say your most difficult challenge is by having business so far away? 
the biggest challenge would be that, you know, as a salesman, when I go over there, my service work is a couple days because uh, you got to travel out to the desert, you live in camp, you do the work out in the desert, but nobody likes to just to do service. So my biggest challenge when I go over there is I take another seven or eight days and I try to sell. As anybody knows, trying to sell outside your territory or outside your state or your province or your county is very difficult in that you can't respond very quickly and, and the sales timeline is much longer. That's what would be my biggest challenge is not the service because it's that's uh, we've got that pretty uh, pretty down to a routine. It would be trying to get additional business to justify the cost and the expense of going over there. What would you say your your biggest water treatment victory is? So not just talking overseas, but your entire water treatment career. What's your biggest victory? That is another really good question. You know, it could be in in the fact there's two ways to look at it. It could be just in straight dollar value, and it could be also in something that was persistent, persistent. So in a dollar value, I was able to a number of years ago get a refinery. Uh, which was quite large. So it was a cooling, the wastewater and the boilers. I was able to work uh, with the company at the time. It's no longer existent. It's been bought out, but at the company at the time uh, to get that business. From a persistent standpoint, there was a diamond mine up in the Northwest Territories, which I had to work and work and work and work at. And it was uh, just more persistence. So I considered both those my uh, my biggest wins. Well, there you go. What would you say your biggest hurdle in water treatment would be? My biggest hurdle in this part of the world is travel. Like I said a little bit earlier, we're a very large country geographically, small population. So all of my accounts are the ones that I consider to be uh, the most, you know, where you have to put the most attention, they provide the most payback, are all from a minimum of two-hour drive, and some of them are eight-hour drive. So once a month when I do my uh, service cycle, I'm gone for four nights and I drive, you know, two, three hours, stop and do the service that's required. And I have to take everything with me, all my pump parts, all my spare reagents, everything I need, it's got to come with me. So then in the winter, obviously, when it's cold, nothing can freeze. So when I get it to the hotel at night, I have to haul everything in. It's quite a process, put it in the hotel room. And then in the morning, start the vehicle up again and uh, reverse that process. So in, in my world, it's travel and the remote location of the uh, of the customer sites. You know, it's funny, two hours to you is going to get you, you know, well over 100 miles, two hours here in Atlanta, we're going to get maybe five. <laughs> I know, I was talking to another member of uh, the board, Michael, who lives in California, and he says it's for him to go 15 or 17 miles from his home to his office takes an hour. And for me, like an hour, I'm, I'm 60 miles away, just, just straight driving. So it is vastly different. <laughs> well, let's talk a, a little bit about AWT and specifically your president this year. Congratulations. Yeah, it's an exciting time. It's it's great. It's something that uh, slowly evolved. And then now that it's here, it, it, seems, it seems natural. The, uh, the AWT and the uh, and the management association and previous presidents and people that I had got to know they they prep you so well for it so that when it's actually time to be president it doesn't seem like anything is any different it's it's a, it's amazing actually i thought this would be something where i would it would be i would feel different it would it would be different but the couple meetings that i've had already it's it's just like any other meeting everybody respects everybody and we work very well together as a group I've had a lot of people ask me how I became president and how I've started to volunteer and what the evolution of that was. Do you mind sharing with the Scaling Up Nation how you got involved with the Association of Water Technologies and all the different steps that you did that eventually led you to where you are now? 
Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a good story. You know, like everybody else, when you first get there, doesn't matter how confident you are, when you get into that AWT or if you get into any kind of large group setting, you, you do seem to be on the outside looking in because people know each other, they gravitate to each other. So in order to overcome that hurdle, I you know, went and talked to Angela. Angela said, hey, there's a couple committees that need some help. So I joined certification and membership. And from there, uh, Mark Lewis took me under his wing and uh, helped me in the membership committee get to a certain point where then when he became president, he needed to give up the committee leadership role and he asked me to do it. So that was the next evolution, became committee chair, did that for three or four years as well. I ran for the board three times and on my third time, I was lucky enough to get elected to the board. After getting uh, elected to the board, I, I knew that I wanted to keep going. Three years wouldn't be enough to give back to the AWT, so I figured I'd throw my name in the hat, and, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be elected treasurer and then secretary and then uh, president-elect, and it's worked out really well. Selfishly, I, I love the travel, and I love the ability to go to a bunch of different cities and locations I never would get to go and meet people and, and do activities that I would not normally be a part of. And unselfishly, I love the fact that I get so much out of AWT that I'm able to hopefully people realize that I'm giving back and that there is some benefit to me being involved. What are some of the things that you talk about during some of these board meetings? Well, you know, the, the board meeting, when, uh, when I first joined the board, we uh, were working on policies and procedures and, 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 and kind of following, not necessarily being reactive, but we weren't necessarily as proactive as we could. We ran into some issues where we were challenged with getting new people to join the board. We were new volunteers. So we reached out because we were not the only association to do that. We reached out to a consultant who helped us change our focus rather than from being uh, kind of in the middle of reactive and proactive to being more global in thinking and allowing the committees to more freely flow and do the work that wasn't really pushing the association in the right direction. So we've now have four outcomes, a technical, a business, um, we have an advocacy, and we have a charity. So that all of the committee are now working towards those four outcomes, all pulling the same direction. A lot, of, a lot of good things have come out over the past few years, and it'll continue to go. So it's more of the board now is more of an overseer and provides the big picture and then stops at that point rather than doing um, a little bit of work on uh, the day-to-day stuff. So you mentioned those four categories. Uh, what would be an example of some of the things the association is doing in technical? Well, like in technical, we, we have an app uh, for everybody's phone now. So that allows you to do calculations on the go right when you're in the customer site without firing up your uh, tablet or your laptop. Last year, we rolled it out. This year, we're doing a metric version of it. Technical would be the learning source. That's that online training modules, uh, 39 modules that uh, allows you to, after the fundamentals course that actually you're a a leader in the fundamentals course of the uh, where you attend the three day. The next step would be the learning source. Uh, we started out with uh, having 50 modules that we bought, and now we're up to 75. The uh, online fundamentals that you teach, Trace, is now going to be we're going to roll it out and we're going to have uh, nine modules that's going to be online as well. So that's really good work on the technical. On the business side, we uh, had a half-day business meeting at the last convention. We're going to have another half-day business owners meeting in 2018 convention. And then in February of 2019, we're going to roll that out to a day 
you know, a day and a half with some entertainment and some peer reviews and that type of thing. So that's really good from the business. We also have Dale Carnegie business courses. So the, the business is really growing under this new um, structure. It's gone from just being a sidelight to, you know, getting to be an equal to the technical side. Very, very exciting. From the advocacy side, we have uh, at the last convention, there was uh, TV, print, and radio interviews with uh, various people within the association. We had a lot of publicity at Grand Rapids. We're looking for more of the same at Orlando in 2018. And we also have a lot of involvement with a lot more peer reviews when it comes to um, when it comes to stuff that's coming out and related to our water treatment industry. Whereas before we were just see, sit on the sideline, let it happen. We're now actively involved in that. So that's quite exciting. Uh, finally, the charity. We are actively involved with Pure Water of the World. It's quite exciting. We uh, we do some fundraising and we have three AWT-centered trips to Honduras and Haiti in 2018. So it's it's really quite exciting, uh, the involvement when you get a bunch of people like-minded, how you can change people's lives at that point. I did want to ask about Pure Water of the World. How did the association come to choose that be the charity? Well, you know, like everything else, it's we're committee driven. So in this case, uh, the president at the time convened a task force and got some interested parties who wanted to be involved in that. And we said, do we just said we want to be involved in charity and we gave them full license. So do we start our own charity? Do we partner with the charity? What do we do? They went away and they did work for a couple months and they determined that the work and the effort of starting a charity would be probably outweigh the benefit in the first number of years. So they looked around at partnering with the charity. At the time, there was a number of different ones that came in and made presentations to that task force. And the culture of Pure Water for the World really closely aligned with the culture of the association. So that was the recommendation from the task force up to the board and the board reviewed uh, you know, their work and, and approved Pure Water. And it's been just over a year. It was probably we're about 15, 16 months into our working collaboration. And it's taken a little bit of effort to get, you know, everything lined up. But now that after the first year, it's it's quite successful. And I think it's only going to go gangbusters from here. I must say, I really enjoyed speaking to the representatives that were at the convention in Grand Rapids for Pure Water of the World. In fact, there have been several people that have written into the show asking to get more information about that after hearing it on the show. So I'm excited to hear more about how the AWT works with that organization and all the great things that come out to it. Now, I know you recently went on a trip to work with them. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so what kind of in the first year, they, you know, they came and made presentations at the board, they made presentations at the convention, but what they wanted was some real life experience from AWT people to give back at the next convention. So it's not just somebody selling, it's 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 an internal part of the association selling to the association. So Jason St. Sierra and I uh, took some time in August of this year and we went to Haiti. We did a one-week trip down to Haiti, and we're involved in setting up filters, doing on-site water testing, and also doing cleaning of filters that had been in the field. It was a uh, four days in the field plus a couple of days in the lab. It was quite quite an extensive trip, very rewarding. My personal take on it, it's very heartwarming, but it's also heartbreaking because the heartwarming is you get hugs from the families, you're impacting their lives immediately. Heartbreaking is that you're walking past families that don't have the filters yet and and they are still doing it the old way, which is, you know, drinking and working with contaminated water. It was a trip that I would highly recommend that 
if you're at all interested in doing charity work, this combines both the water treatment skills as well as the charity and, and they get boots on the ground, as which is what they need in both Haiti and Honduras. So not so much the industrial water treatment, but, but working with these filters, is that what, what you were doing? Yeah, these are gravity filters. They're, you know, just like any gravity filter you'd have in a plant, except they're just on a smaller scale, just point of use. So, you know, put a five-gallon bucket of water in the top, it filters through the sand, the rocks, um, charcoal, and then they have a little chlorination type step at the end. And then the water is becomes potable and it's a, it's immediate and it's effective. And the testing is proving it out. It's been It's been ongoing for a number of years in Haiti and about 15 in Honduras and, and the results are steady and the results are excellent and it's proven both in the family quality of life and in the health of the family. So it's it's a great it's a great setup and it's, so it's not industrial but some of the industrial aspects like the testing the sampling and and the protocols that we're used to doing every day can be rolled over and used uh, when you're in country. Just so people listening can understand what the water is you're starting out with, do you mind describing exactly what it is, what you're trying to filter out, and what the effluent finally turns into? Yeah, so what it is is the, the water source can be uh, trucked in water to a cistern that would be within a small community or town. It could be surface water. It could be well water. But for the most part, Every source of water is it's either contaminated at the source or it's contaminated in the transportation or it's contaminated in the house. So it's not only just cleaning up the water, there's some life skills that are involved in it. So the water would have all kinds of microorganisms in there. And so when it filters out, then it's it's it becomes not potable where it would be the North American standards, but it's would be potable in in the countries that it's that it's treated in. So it's it's something it's quite visible when you look at the before and after water tests. It's, it's quite dramatic when they do the uh, coliforms and the microbiome testing is, is quite extensive and, and the results are impressive. Are there any personal stories that you can share about your trip, some of the families that you helped? Well, you know what? Like I said, it's heartbreaking. You go into, you'd hike up uh, into these villages, which would be up in the hills away from the, the Port-au-Prince. And I wasn't carrying water, but we'd go down to the source, which would be, say, three quarters of a mile and probably a 500 yard drop down to where the well was. And then of course you have to load up a bucket of water and carry it back to your family. So when we're walking down and up, there's kids from as young as five with two, three gallons to larger kids with five gallons of water that they would do this two and three times a day because a typical family would go through 15 gallons of water a day. And when you can see those kids and you can, the water that they haul, is is cleaned up and they can then just take it and have a drink it's it is it is amazing it, it was quite quite profound somebody who's listening today and they want to find out more information where and what can they do well you can go to the awt website and that's awt.org and there's a link there that takes you to uh, the pww website or you can go to pww.org which is straight to the pure water for the world website and they are, there's a couple links in there. If you're interested in going on a trip, there's a sign up. We're looking for a few more people signing up by January 18th, which would then confirm the trips to Haiti and Honduras. If you're just looking to give some money, there's an avenue for that. Other avenues would be uh, for the testing. If people want to donate 
equipment or test equipment or anything, uh, they find that easier than, than giving money. There's an avenue for that as well. So there's a bunch of different ways to give. It's not just necessarily cash out of your pocket. There's time and there's uh, goods in exchange for a charitable receipt. The organization is quite flexible and will work with you in whichever manner you would like to participate. I'll be sure to put those links on the show notes page so people can find those. So being president of the Association of Water Technologies, what do we have in store for this year at AWT? Well, obviously the big one is we have the convention in Orlando, but I think more importantly is in end of February in Las Vegas and the end of March in Cleveland, our our bread and butter and our flagship, which is our training seminars, the the expertise that we can bring together in a in a setting like that is is amazing. The water treatment history and experience in years of service is great. Anybody I talk to, I highly recommend. That money is is well spent. I've been to a few of them now, and every time I leave, I come away more impressed with uh, with the work. For example, the tips and fundamentals and the course that you developed, Trace, that's from ground zero four years ago to what we have now is over the top and it would compete with almost any of the training sessions that would be out there on third-party websites. So it's very impressive. A lot of work went into it and, and it just is, is amazing. So that is our bread and butter would be the true training courses, then the convention. And we do have uh, the online fundamentals that we're going to be releasing in May of this year. And the learning source uh, it continues to grow as well. So that's where the people who join the AWT or want to reap a benefit from it, it comes from the amount of effort that, that you put in. You could tenfold take it out in knowledge, peers, and people that it can help you. It's amazing. The training classes are one of my favorite things to do. And I think we're able to offer it at such economical prices because everybody volunteers to do that. So speaking of volunteers, I know we're always looking for people to help get the organization doing the things that the organization needs to get done. What do you want to say to the Scaling Up Nation that, you know, getting involved with the association is helping them as much as it's helping out the association? Thanks for opening that door. One of the things that what we find that, that is, it doesn't prevent, but inhibits people joining committees or joining the organizations, they think they have to be an expert in some particular area. Well, that's not necessarily true. Everybody is good or really good or an expert at something. It doesn't necessarily need to be something uh, particularly suited to water treatment. It could be that you're really good at, at working with PowerPoint. You're really good with uh, organizing a group of people, really good at making phone calls. There's, there's a ton of different ways that we can use expertise. So we don't need water treatment experts. We need people who would like to give back and would like to commit to the uh, association in a task force, which could be two or three months, it could be in a committee uh, for two or three years. It could be in a bunch of committees. There is a lot of stuff that needs to be done, and it's not necessarily just pure water treatment. It's We're just looking for people who would enjoy working with other people, developing some friendships, and then when you get to the convention uh, once a year, you see them in, in person, you sit down, have a coffee at the round tables. It's, it's a really great environment, and if you're really committed to it, and there's a lot of questions and pure exchange, when you leave, your basket will be fuller than when you joined with whatever function that you can bring to our association. And how would somebody start that process if they wanted to get started? 
Well, you know what? There's a bunch of different ways. Uh, one of the easiest ways might be just to send an email to Angela Pike at the EWT. You can send me an email or a phone call. Any of the board members, there's committee chairs. All of this information is online on our website. Or if uh, you look at the analyst, all of the contact information is there as well. Or if you're not sure, maybe somebody within your company, a friend of a friend who's part of the AWT, you can maybe start a little bit more slowly and and just ask them to see if they could sponsor you and, and get you into one of the groups that you may be interested in. There's lots of different ways to join and lots of different ways to give back. Mark, what's the one thing you want listeners out there to know about the Association of Water Technologies? Oh, that is a really good question. It's also tough, Trace. Uh, The one thing I'd like to know is that the organization or the association is, and I use the analogy, you can can lead a horse to water, but if they don't take a drink, there's not much you can do. The association is there. The amount of information, the amount of benefit that you can get from it is is tremendous. And, And we could talk for another hour and I could just you know, wrote off all of this type of information that's available. You have to want to open that door or take that drink of water. So the the information's there, the participation is there, and it's available. You just have to be able to or want to to start taking back. And how you do that, everybody's going to be different. But that's what I'd like to say is the association, you can't you can't make it so that everybody just gets handed on a platter. It's there. You, you have to reach out a little bit. And then when you make that effort to reach out, a lot of hands will reach out and pull you up. One of my favorite lines that you say all the time, Trace, is that a rising tide raises all boats. I'm one of those boats. I was uh, uh, floating adrift in 2006, and now I'm president of the association. So my goal is to turn around and and hopefully I can raise some more boats in the next 10 years as, and, and be a volunteer continually and help other people get to where I am now. A great answer. Well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. I can probably ask you 20 more questions about the Association of Water Technologies, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and enter into the lightning round if you are ready for that. Okay. All right. So the lightning round is where we ask our guests very similar questions, and then we get to play along and, uh, and see how one person answers over another. If you could go back in time and see yourself, speak with yourself on your very first day as a water treater, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself would be that no's don't hurt. Uh, One of the hard things that you have to learn is over the years is no's are just as good as a yes, because there is a decision that's been made and a direction that's been given. Doesn't mean that you give up, but in my early years, I took no's personally. Yes, you get to be more confident in your abilities. You take the no's and and that at least gives you something to work with. So that's what I'd go back and say. I'm trying to think, was it Zig Ziglar that said every no was leading you closer to a yes? It was one of those guys, yeah. I do remember that in a training course somewhere. I just, I'm just not sure which one. What are the last three books that you've read? You know what? I, a lot of my reading is just purely so I could turn my mind off. So I, do, um, I just read for fun. I do read some you know, managing books and training course, that type of thing. But if I'm going to pick up a book and read, I like Lee Child. He, he's got a good series. Another one is Mark Dawson. It's, you know, espionage. Guys are running around the world doing this and doing that, saving the world at the end. And it's a series of where, you know, you have a number of books where they just, one leads to another. So it's just pure escapism. Awesome. And eventually they're going to make a movie about you. Who plays you? <laughs> wow, that's a good one. 
a lot of my friends have said that I remind them of Ray Romano, kind of a jokester, you know, dark hair. You're not really sure to take the uh, the guy seriously, but he's got a real funny uh, funny bone, and a lot of situations can be uh, can be made comical in one way or the other to uh, lighten up the mood. So I would say Ray Romano. There you go. And my last question is, uh, if you could talk with anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? I think I would like to talk to my great-grandfather. He came from Holland, and he just picked up his family and emigrated. And I always wondered, you know, what did you have to face in life? I've never had to face something like that where it's, it's you have all or nothing. So you'd pick up your family, and you'd get on a boat, and you'd sail across the ocean, and you'd arrive in Halifax, similar to, like, the New York Harbor, and you'd get on a train, and you would go somewhere, not knowing where you're going, not knowing what's at the other end. And, and that's you, you just have a fundamental change. We don't have to do that now, or at least people I know don't have to do that now. But I'd like to go back and ask my great-grandfather, I said, what, what was it that went through your mind and, and how scary was it or how exciting was it? What was it that, that led you to do that? That's, that's what I'd like to find out. Well, Mark, I've really enjoyed the last uh, 40 minutes that we've spent together. And I want to thank you for your volunteering with the association I know me personally, how the association helped develop me and all the things that I have now because I volunteered. Uh, you, of course, know that, and hopefully we can find some more people to do that as well. But I just want to take an opportunity and thank you for volunteering and thank you for coming on Scaling Up. Well, yeah, and like I said, Trace, you are one of the key members of our association, so keep doing what you're doing. Uh, your involvement is tremendous. I'd like to uh, make sure that everybody in Scaling Up knows that it's you're more than just the wonderful tones of Scaling Up. You're heavily involved in the AWT, and it's been uh, something that is something to be proud of. So I'd like to thank you personally for all the effort you put in. Well, there you have it, folks. Straight from the president of the Association of Water Technologies, what to expect this upcoming year. And I hope you heard something that interests you, something that you said, I want to participate in that. I'm going to learn more from that. And if you did, by all means, go ahead, go straight into your calendar right now and write down if there was a particular date of an event that you want to go to. Make sure you get that on there so you can plan for it. And I know because you listen to this show, one of your goals is to learn more about the industry that you're in. A great way to do that is actually to volunteer with the Association of Water Technologies. And you're probably thinking, I'm so busy right now, how do I possibly have time to do what I'm doing and volunteer for the Association of Water Technologies? What I would ask for you to do, if that's the question that you have, is examine how many opportunities do you have to actually learn more about the career that you are in. Volunteering gives you that opportunity when you're active. So the AWT and Mark have all these items that he just mentioned, and the only way that those items get done is volunteers do them. So if you want to learn more about a particular topic, don't wait until you're the expert on that topic because it's never going to happen. Nobody knows everything about a particular topic. But if you choose something to get involved with that interests you, you're going to immerse yourself in that process of whatever they're building and you are going to learn by default. The other cool thing that happens is you're going to meet 
a whole bunch of really cool people that know a lot about that topic and that are also in the field that you are in. So you're going to start accumulating people that you can talk to and ask questions to when you don't know the answers. So that's the magic behind volunteering. If you're interested in that, I'm going to put some information on my show notes page that will take you right to the AWT website to give you some information about volunteering. And a great episode to listen to around volunteering is the interview that I did with Michelle Farmery. And she spoke about all the different needs that the Association of Water Technologies have and how you can volunteer. So that was episode 12, if you want to go ahead and check that out. And uh, some ways you can find that are scalinguph2o.com forward slash 12 or on your Apple or Android device. Just go to whatever app you're using and navigate through the episodes. Go to episode 12. Let's get to my absolute favorite section, which is pinks and blues. Pinks and blues is where I have the opportunity to answer questions that you, the Scaling Up Nation, asked me and said, hey, I want to learn a little bit more about this. So it's my favorite section because I know I'm speaking directly to you and I'm giving you the information you said you wanted. So I know I'm talking about the right things. Instead of asking three different questions, or instead of answering three different questions on today's show, I took about a dozen questions, grouped them all together, and we're going to theme pinks and blues. The theme is going to be pH meters. I received a lot of questions around how to calibrate pH meters, you know, why I need to calibrate them more often than maybe somebody else, what is the best pH meter, a bunch of questions around procedures. I even received one where somebody was in disbelief that I calibrate my meter every day. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the mechanics, the procedures behind calibration and why we calibrate. And for you out there that asked me, do I calibrate my meter every day? The answer is yes and no. I calibrate my meter whenever it needs to be calibrated. So with that, I want you to think about how well do you trust your meter and how well do you know your meter to know when it's not calibrated? If you're relatively new, that might be a difficult concept, but every time you do a test, take advantage of everything that's around you and try to learn from that. So if all these things are doing the same thing they've always done, I normally get this reading. All right, everything around me is exactly the same as far as I can tell, as it always is, and I'm not getting that reading. That should clue you in that something is not right. So let's apply that to our pH meter. And actually, before we get into that, I want to acknowledge that there is a plethora of pH meters out there. So it's difficult for me to speak about every single meter because I couldn't. When I am mentally thinking through these questions and these procedures, I'm defaulting to the meter that we use. And that is the Myronel 6P. I think that's the industry standard for people like you and I running these tests. 
and the meter that we use. So that's what I'm envisioning when I'm going through these tests, but I am saying that there's all sorts of meters out there and you might not have that one. So whatever I say, just apply it to your meter. So how do you know when your meter is not telling you accurate information? We said on a previous episode that you need to store the meter properly and you should be storing that in an electrode storage solution. I was told that that electrode storage solution is pH 4 buffer without the dye. And we said on an earlier episode that one of the ways meters fail is that dye in pH 4 buffer will actually migrate through that glass bulb that's on your probe and it will make it so your meter cannot work. So let's assume that whatever the juice is that we're using, that electrode storage solution has a pH of four. And the people that we get our electrode storage solution from, they've said that's what it is. It's just the same thing without the dye. So it has a pH of four. If you're wondering about that, take the pH of it. You can make a phone call, you can do whatever, but very simply just take the pH of it when your meter's calibrated and see what it is. Now, without doing anything, when you hit the pH button and there's storage solution in there, you should get the reading of whatever that solution is. If it's off and you know that you've got really good, clean electrode storage solution, it's not something that you've used over 15 times. By the way, don't do that. Just throw it away. When you're getting ready to use your meter and you got storage solution in, just waste it, just get rid of it. It's not reusable. If it is not telling you what it should be telling you, that's an indicator that it's off and you might need to calibrate. So we're gonna talk about that calibration procedure, but before we do that, I want you to think about why that might be off of calibration. And if you're calibrating your meter every single day, that might be telling you that something you're doing in your day-to-day -day process is causing that meter not to hold calibration. So think about it. The cleaner your meter is, the cleaner the probe, the cleaner that little glass ball is, the more accurate it's going to be. So in our day-to-day, -day, we're probably not measuring too dirty of a sample, but we could be. And if we're not cleaning our meter, at the very least rinsing our meter when we are sampling, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Now, if you've had some sort of oily residual in your water or your test, and you put that on your probe, that is going to coat that little glass ball and it is going to change the way that meter is able to read and that is going to get the meter to read falsely. So if you have an oily sample, make sure you use some sort of mild cleaner to get that off. And you say, oh Trace, well what kind of cleaner do I use? Well, I really like Simple Green. Simple Green is made here in Atlanta. They're just miles from our office. That's not why I use it. I use it because it's readily available and it, I think it smells great. It simply works very well for this purpose. But you can use other cleaners. Windex may work. Fantastic 409, something like that. The point is that if you get your probe dirty, you have to clean it off or you're going to get false readings. So you know your meter's clean, you, you know you've taken care of it, and by taking care of it, you've kept it in that electrode storage solution. So there's potassium chloride inside that glass ball, 
And if we're not keeping it hydrated, it can dry out. If we're putting anything besides electrode storage solution in there, it can actually change what's inside that glass ball because you know everything's trying to create an equilibrium. So you might be doing damage if you're using something like uh, DI water or something that is not electrode storage solution. It's a reason that it's called electrode storage solution. So keeping your meter clean is paramount. Making sure that you're keeping that probe hydrated is paramount in the electrode storage solution. And then making sure you've got good batteries in the meter. I can't remember on the Myron L6P what the specific voltages are, but it uses a nine volt battery and it doesn't need nine volts. So it actually steps down what it needs. And then when it gets to a certain voltage, that icon pops on that says, hey, change my battery. I've got a low battery. I was told by the time it gets there, it's not at the optimal voltage to give you the best current to get that reading. So you might want to make sure that you're rotating out fresh batteries. And if, if for fun, if you want to put your multimeter on that and figure out exactly what those voltages are, knock yourself out. Keep in mind that every time you open that 6P meter, and this is what I think is one of the design flaws with the 6P, is you've got to open up the, the body of the meter and all the guts and everything is exposed. So just be careful when you do that, but you need to do that. Another thing that I've seen where our meter could be out of calibration or, or not set up to read properly are temperature differentials. So think about it. If I leave my meter in the car overnight in Des Moines where it's negative seven degrees, and then I grab my test kit, go into the boiler room, grab a boiler sample, I don't cool it, and I put that sample into my meter, one, that glass probe's probably going to crack. But if it didn't, since I have such huge swings in temperature, we're already setting the meter up to fail. So one of the items that you can do is to think about room temperature. Have your meter at room temperature, have your sample at room temperature. The closer the temperature is to the meter, to the sample, the more accurate, the better chance that we give that meter to give us a better result. So now let's say we've done all of that and the meter is out of calibration. And we knew that because when we hit the pH button with the electrode storage solution in there, it wasn't for, or let's say you have a sample and you know pretty much what it should be based on everything you observe when you take that sample time after time again. And it's not saying that, well, now we need to calibrate. And if you're ever in doubt, you can put buffer in and see what it reads. And if it's spot on, something else is going on. But let's get into the calibration procedure. The first thing that you need to do when you calibrate any meter is clean it. Now, we said we were going to clean it if we had something dirty in it. And by the way, keeping it clean each and every time is rinsing it out. My procedure is I always have DI water in my test kit. So I will rinse that little pH cup out at least three times, and then I'll put my electrode storage solution in. You know, uh, by the way, uh, talking about the Myron L6P, if you were to look inside that rubber cap that keeps the electrode storage solution around the probe, there's a little piece of foam in there. And they put that foam in there to absorb some of the electrode storage solution. 
So if you forgot to put the storage solution in, there was a little bit left in that cap to at least keep it so it wouldn't dry out. I know that you are very good at your procedures and we're gonna clean the meter every time. We're gonna put the electrode storage solution in every time. And I say clean the meter, I really meant rinse the meter every time, clean it when you need to. But we're gonna make sure we're always putting that electrode storage solution in. So take a pair of needle nose pliers and just grab that little piece of foam and discard it. In my opinion, you don't need it. You're gonna have that storage solution in there and that cap is, is gonna keep it flooded so it can't go anywhere. The only thing in my opinion that little foam does is it harbors dirt and crud and all sorts of stuff that sets us up for failure each and every time. So if we haven't been cleaning our meter and now we start and we've got that foam piece that's in there that had all the crud and dirt for the last however many whatever that we've been using that meter, we've now introduced that back into the party. So a little aside there. Let's get back to actually calibrating the meter. I, I go off on these little rabbit holes, but this is good information. And, and you guys, I, I tell you, so many questions around pH meters, I'm making sure that I'm answering all of them. So the calibration procedure, we're making sure that we kept up with all the things that we had to do to keep it clean. So we're assuming that it is clean, but now we're going to physically clean it before the calibration. And whether you use the Simple Green or the 409 or whatever it is, we're gonna put that on a paper towel or microfiber, and we're gonna gingerly go around that little glass probe, making sure that we don't bend the other electrode that's in that little cup. And we'll get all the stuff off there. It's always fun to look at a white paper towel and see all the gunk even that's coming off, even though you think that it's clean. Then we've got to rinse that cleaner out. And the way I like to do that is I just like to turn on a faucet, put it under the faucet and rinse that sucker out really well. Because if there's any cleaner in that, it's going to throw off our calibration. On the Myron L6P, it wants a seven buffer first. And when we calibrate, we calibrate either to a two point calibration or a three point calibration. Those points are seven, a pH of seven, a pH of four, and a pH of 10. Seven's yellow, 10 is blue, four is pink. I make sure that my buffers are in a really easy dispensable cap, so it's just got a little flip cap, and then I can squirt the buffer right over the probe, and I will rinse that three times with the buffer that I'm getting ready to test. After it's been rinsed three times, I then make sure that it's on a flat surface and I fill that cup all the way up. I make sure that there's plenty of pH buffer in there so everything is covered that needs to be covered. And with the 6P, we're gonna start doing that with seven. So I did that procedure with seven. I then hit the calibration button and it is hopefully gonna read seven. If it doesn't read seven, we're gonna use the arrow keys to arrow up or down until we get to seven. And the reason you wanna do this on a stable flat surface is if you're changing the configuration in which the fluid is, is reading, that could throw that off as well. So you wanna make sure you just get all the errors possible out of this calibration process so you're getting the most out of it. I hit the calibration button, I arrow it up or down to seven. I wanna hold it for a second. I'm not just gonna hit the calibration button to go to the next one. I wanna make sure it's stabilized there. And once I'm sure it's stabilized, I'm gonna hit the calibration button. And then the 6P is going to ask for either 10 or four. 
It probably doesn't matter which one you do next. What I do is whatever I'm going to test next and whatever that pH is going to be, I will use that buffer last. So if I'm testing tower water, that's gonna be a little bit higher. It's gonna be in the eights or something like that. So I'm gonna use pH 10. Don't know if that matters, but that's just what I do. So let's say I'm doing that. I go ahead and dump out that seven. I then triple rinse with my four buffer. I fill up my cup with the four, and then I arrow up or down to make sure it reads four. And then I wait until it stabilizes at four. I hit that calibration button again. I do this exact same thing with 10. And then after I hit the calibration button that time, it should accept a calibration. And then if we go back to whatever we were testing, we should have a more accurate reading. And again, if you have to calibrate often and you're not trusting your meter, your probe could be bad or something's wrong with your procedure. So think long and hard about how well are you taking care of your equipment. That leads into a question that I also received, how long should a probe last? And to be honest, I really can't answer that question because when they make those probes, they do have a shelf life. And that clock starts counting down as soon as they're made. So the answer to that, the best one I can give you is your probe is going to last longer, the better you take care of it. So all the things I mentioned in the very beginning of this question, you are going to get more mileage out of the probe if you take care of it. I will say that we, in the very beginning, probably didn't take care of our meters and our probes as well as we should have. And we saw that because we were replacing probes frequently, a couple times a year. And if you've ever bought a replacement probe for a Myron L6P, you realize that, you know, that's not a very cheap probe to replace. So you want to make sure you're getting the life out of it that you can. Well, today, I know for a fact that we have meters in service that have probes in them that are three years or older. And we're good with that because we're still getting good, accurate readings. And how do we know it's good and accurate? Well, because when we calibrate them, they're holding calibration. So that's why you're not calibrating your meter when you just simply think you're out of calibration. Do it on a consistent basis. And our basis is to do it every week. And that gives us the confidence that that meter and that probe is still working. So let's answer another question. Somebody asked, which is the best pH meter? And folks, you know that when I am asked the question, which of whatever is the best, I'm always hesitant to answer that because I can only answer that for myself. Best means how you're going to use it. Of course, there's probably a price factor in there. There's a features factor, but you're the one that's going to use that, so you should be the one to gauge that. But I will tell you what I look for when I'm trying to gauge that. One is how compact is it? How readily available is it to travel? And like I said, the Myron L6P, we landed on because it's handheld. All the probes are attached. You don't have cords attached to them. At one time, we had a meter that was strapped to the inside lid of our test kit. And then we had cords to the pH probe and the conductivity probe. And we found that maneuvering those cords would sometimes knock over some of the samples that we were waiting to develop. 
and it was a little bit more cumbersome. So having the little handheld cup there eliminated that and it made it faster for us to do those tests. So speed and ease is definitely something that you wanna look on. And then something that you feel confident with. So I mentioned price. Obviously you can spend more money on one meter versus another meter, but maybe you don't need this super fancy meter for whatever you're doing. Maybe you just want your customer to test every so often and they're not gonna spend $500,000 on a meter. So you might be able to get them more inexpensive, like one of those little pin pH testers, and that might be fine for the actual instance that you're using it for. So use all of these things to figure out what is the best one for you, but we've got all sorts of great vendors out there that can definitely help you answer that question as well. Another question that somebody wrote in said that they don't even have a pH meter and their boss does not see the value in spending money on a pH meter and how do they convince their boss that they need one? Well, I would say have them listen to this show. Maybe see if their boss will go to training with you. Folks, if you don't know certain base information when you're making your recommendations on how you're going to tweak and improve a program, you're not gonna be able to do that very well. One of those things that you need to know is the pH. So if you don't know what your pH is, I don't think that you can do your job properly. So hopefully that comment in itself is enough to get a pH meter. And like I said, if, if he's not gonna go for the, the one that you really want, you saw it in a catalog, you have to have it. Maybe you can get something that's a little bit less expensive and, uh, and hopefully that'll work fine for you. If it doesn't, I would recommend you come up with all the reasons why another meter might work better and it will be cheaper, faster, safer, whatever it is in the long run. Another question sort of around that is instead of using my pH meter, can I just get pH based on my alkalinity? And we've spoken about alkalinity on a previous show where you can take your alkalinity and knowing your alkalinity, you know what pH range you should be in based on you know, what color phenolphthalein is. And phenolphthalein turns pink at a pH of 8.3. So if we're 8.3 or higher, it should turn pink. If it's below 8.3, it shouldn't be pink at all. But that doesn't really tell you a specific pH. So my answer to that is no, you cannot use something else in lieu of a meter. I had a question, you know, are the test trips accurate enough for what we do? My advice is that if you're going to take pH, use a meter. For what we do at the level that we do it, we need to know what that pH is because we are going to respond to that. When we deviate from that, we're not going to get as accurate results, and there's a whole bunch of guesswork in there. And if your reagents are telling you a range, that's not specific enough. And if you are using those test strips, think about what those are designed for, and they're designed for pools, most likely. So what we do, a little more dynamic is going on than what's happening in the swimming pool. So my answer is go out and find a good pH meter. Folks, I really wanna thank you for asking questions like this. Without questions like this, 
I cannot have a section like this, or I can't do a show like I did where the whole hour was just me answering your questions. And by the way, that was my highest rated show. And for me, I think that was the funnest show that I ever had because I knew I was speaking directly to you. Before I sign off, I wanna tell you about a phone call that I received, and I think it was the biggest compliment I ever received about this show. And it was from Andy Morcom. Andy Morcom was uh, one of the CWTs that came on and told us about the process that he went through in order to get his CWT. Well, after his show aired, he received a phone call from one of his competitors congratulating him for not only getting his CWT, but also being a guest on Scaling Up and invited him to share a beer with them so they could have a conversation about the process. And Andy told me that before this show, that phone call would have never happened. That since this show, he has been able to speak to more of his competitors in a friendly way because now they have something in common besides the business that you're both competing on. So so folks, you know that my goal is to have a rising tide raise all boats. And as a water treater, it can be lonely out there. Nobody really understands what it is that we do except for other fellow water treaters. So if we are able to break the ice and have friendly conversations because of this show, I can't think of a better compliment. So Andy, thank you for calling me and letting me know about that. I just think that that is awesome. Folks, I do hope you are constantly thinking about ways to make yourself better. And I also hope that you join me next time on Scaling Up.